Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Far away and long ago, by W. H. Hudson. Chapter 22 Boyhood's End. This book has already run to a greater length than was intended. Nevertheless, there must be yet another chapter or two to bring it to a proper ending, which I can only find by skipping over three years of my life, and so getting at once to the age of fifteen. For that was a time of great events and serious changes, bodily and mental, which practically brought the happy time of my boyhood to an end. On looking back over the book, I find that on three or four occasions I have placed some incident in the wrong chapter or group, thus making it take place a year or so, too soon or too late. These small errors of memory are, however, not worth altering now. So long as the scene or event is rightly remembered and pictured, it doesn't matter much whether I was six or seven or eight years old at the time. I find, too, that I have omitted many things, which perhaps deserved a place in the book, scenes and events which are vividly remembered, but which, unfortunately, did not come up at the right moment, and so were left out. Of these scenes unconsciously omitted, I will now give one which should have appeared in the chapter describing my first visit to Buenos Aires City. Placed here, it will serve very well as an introduction to this last chapter. In those days, and indeed down to the seventies of the last century, the south side of the capital was the site of the famous Saladero, or killing grounds, where the fat cattle, horses and sheep, brought in from all over the country, were slaughtered every day, some to supply the town with beef and mutton, and to make charque, or sun-dried beef, for exportation to Brazil, where it was used to feed the slaves, but the greater number of the animals, including all the horses, were killed solely for their hides and tallow. The grounds covered a space of three or four square miles, where there were cattle enclosures made of upright posts placed close together, and some low buildings scattered about. To this spot were driven endless flocks of sheep, half or wholly wild horses, and dangerous-looking long-horned cattle, in herds of a hundred or so to a thousand, each moving in its cloud of dust, with noise of bellowings and bleatings, and furious shouting of the drovers as they galloped up and down, urging the doomed animals on. 
When the beasts arrived in two great numbers to be dealt with in the buildings, you could see hundreds of cattle being killed in the open, all over the grounds, in the old barbarous way the gauchos use, every animal first being lassoed, then hamstrung, then its throat cut, a hideous and horrible spectacle, with a suitable accompaniment of sounds in the wild shouts of the slaughterers and the awful bellowings of the tortured beasts. Just where the animal was knocked down and killed, it was stripped of its hide and the carcass cut up, a portion of the flesh and fat being removed, and all the rest left on the ground to be devoured by the pariah dogs, the carrion hawks, and a multitude of screaming black-headed gulls, always in attendance. The blood so abundantly shed from day to day, mixing with the dust, had formed a crust half a foot thick all over the open space. Let the reader try to imagine the smell of this crust, and of tons of offal and flesh and bones lying everywhere in heaps. But no, it cannot be imagined. The most dreadful scenes, the worst in Dante's Inferno, for example, can be visualized by the inner eye, and sounds, too, are conveyed to us in a description so that they can be heard mentally. But it is not so with smells. The reader can only take my word for it that this smell was probably the worst ever known on earth, unless he accepts as true the story of Tobit and the fishy fumes by means of which that ancient hero defended himself in his retreat from the pursuing devil. It was the smell of carrion, of putrefying flesh, and of that old and ever newly moistened crust of dust and coagulated blood. It was, or seemed, a curiously substantial and stationary smell. Travellers approaching or leaving the capital by the great south road, which skirted the killing grounds, would hold their noses and ride a mile or so at a furious gallop until they got out of the abominable stench. One extraordinary feature of the private quintas or orchards and plantations in the vicinity of the saladeros was the walls or hedges. These were built entirely of cow skulls, seven, eight or nine deep, placed evenly like stones, the horns projecting. Hundreds of thousands of skulls had been thus used, and some of the old, very long walls, crowned with green grass and with creepers and wild flowers growing from the cavities in the bones, had a strangely picturesque but somewhat uncanny appearance. As a rule there were rows of old Lombardy poplars behind these strange walls or fences. In those days bones were not utilised, they were thrown away, and those who wanted walls in a stoneless land, where bricks and wood for palings were dear to buy, found in the skulls a useful substitute. The abomination I have described was but one of many, the principal and sublime stench in a city of evil smells, a populous city built on a plain, without drainage and without water supply, beyond that which was sold by watermen in buckets, each bucketful containing about half a pound of red clay in solution. It is true that the best houses had aljives, or cisterns, under the courtyard, where the rainwater from the flat roofs was deposited. I remember that water well. You always had one or two to half a dozen scarlet wrigglers, the larvae of mosquitoes, in a tumblerful, and you drank your water, quite calmly, wrigglers and all. All this will serve to give an idea of the condition of the city of that time, from the sanitary point of view, 
and this state of things lasted down to the seventies of the last century, when Buenos Aires came to be the chief pestilential city of the globe, and was obliged to call in engineers from England to do something to save the inhabitants from extinction. When I was in my fifteenth year, before any changes had taken place, and the great outbreaks of cholera and yellow fever were yet to come, I spent four or five weeks in the city, greatly enjoying the novel scenes and new life. After about ten or twelve days, I began to feel tired and languid, and this feeling grew on me day by day, until it became almost painful to exert myself to visit even my most favoured haunts, the great South Market, where cage birds were to be seen in hundreds, green parakeets, cardinals and bishop birds predominating, or to the river front, where I spent much time fishing for little silvery kingfishes from the rocks, or further away to the quintas and gardens on the cliff, where I first feasted my eyes on the sight of orange groves laden with golden fruit amidst the vivid green polished foliage, and old olive trees with black egg-shaped fruit showing among the grey leaves. And through it all the feeling of lassitude continued, and was, I thought, due to the fact that I was on foot instead of on horseback, and walking on a stony pavement instead of on a green turf, it never occurred to me that there might be another cause, that I was breathing in a pestilential atmosphere, and that the poison was working in me. Leaving town I travelled by some conveyance to spend a night at a friend's house, and next morning set out for home on horseback. I had about twenty-seven miles across country to ride, and never touched a road, and I was no sooner on my way than my spirits revived. I was well and unspeakably happy again, on horseback on the wide green plain, drinking in the pure air like a draught of eternal life. It was autumn, and the plain as far as one could see on every side a moist, brilliant green, with a crystal blue sky above, over which floated shining white clouds. The healthy, glad feeling lasted through my ride, and for a day or two after, 